I'm Paul H. Curtis, and this is Be Secret and Exult, a podcast of stories about change. This happened 28 years ago on a starless San Francisco night. It was only a brief encounter, but it has stayed with me, even as my poor memory has let so much of my life slip away into oblivion. I was a student at the University of San Francisco, a Jesuit school with a pretty little hilltop campus halfway between the ocean and the bay. Having grown up in much smaller towns, I was still learning how to live in a city learning that it was okay, for instance, not to give money to every person who asked for it, that it was a good idea to avoid stepping in trails of liquid on the sidewalk, that busier streets were safer at night than quiet ones, that the world is full of people who want something from you, even if, especially if, they don't know anything about you. Many of these lessons I learned in long rambles around the city, by day or by night, walking up and down hills from neighborhood to neighborhood. I always set out without any purpose in mind. That was the point, just to see where I might end up and what might happen to me along the way. This turns out to be an excellent approach if you're looking to be recruited by religious cults. I wasn't, necessarily, but I was happy to let the devotees get their pitches in since the whole idea behind my wandering was to see what the world had to say to me. Once I took a long personality quiz at the Scientology headquarters, answering each question as honestly as I could, but the truth is I'm very much sometimes this way and sometimes that way, and the Scientologists, having tallied up my score, judged me as a liar, though the only false information I gave them was a fake name and phone number. On another occasion, walking down Market Street, on a sunny afternoon with a ridiculous beret on my head, I was approached by a friendly Swiss man who complimented my hat and asked if I was interested in meeting his little club of international students. Of course, I said I was, so he brought me up to a wholesome little office decorated as though it belonged to a study abroad program. A clean-cut white guy from Vermont offered me a tuna sandwich and said he was pleased to meet another American, and then he said some odd-sounding things about getting communism off of college campuses, and then he invited me to watch a video. The video sang the praises of the Reverend Sun Young Moon and said that it was very important that I spend some time at a particular camp in order to learn more, and... When the video was done, the clean-cut Vermont guy gave me the hard sell, trying to sign me up on the spot for a week or more at this moony camp somewhere off in the woods. All of this was a bit more than I necessarily wanted to hear from the world, so I politely expressed vague interest and managed to excuse myself without signing anything. These were the last days before the dot-com boom, though I certainly didn't see what was coming for San Francisco. 
It was still a reasonably affordable place to live, at least by comparison to the present day, though it was plagued by a crisis of homelessness its government and people could not seem to wrap their heads around, and the disparities of wealth and fortune revealed as one walked from block to block could be shocking. You might be strolling among grand, beautiful Victorian homes and all at once find yourself in the shadow of an impossibly grim public housing block. In those formative years, I think something of the city's emotional geography was imprinted on me, this sense of passing so easily from dream to nightmare and back again. In any case, San Francisco had not yet in those days been transformed by the digital gold rush it was just beginning to help spark, by all the money it was soon to earn selling the world ways for everyone to be perpetually up in everyone else's business. Even in San Francisco back then, everyone went around untethered to the singularity, without feeds or tags or check-ins, without updates or comments or GPS. If you wanted to meet up with someone, you made your plans in advance, and then at the appointed hour, you launched yourselves into the world like primitive rockets, and you hoped that everyone landed at the right place and time. It was easy to miss someone, easy to lose track of them forever, easy to disappear. On this particular night, I found myself thrust for a moment into someone else's business and witness to a lesson in the art of disappearing. I had left my campus after dark, hopping on one of the rickety old electric trolley buses that served as the city's main form of public transportation. The five Fulton route ran from the university down to the Civic Center, where a small army of the homeless camped beneath the grand Beau Arts buildings. From there, the route swung left onto Market Street, San Francisco's main thoroughfare, but I disembarked that night just at the intersection with Market, thinking I might walk down into the financial district under my own power, with, as always, no particular destination in mind. It was a quiet night, and so I heard the music from some way off, a slow saxophone playing Summertime from Porgy and Bess, a song my mother sang to me when I was little, a song I would sing to my own children as often as I could before they grew too old to allow me to sing to them anymore. Summertime And the living is easy He was standing beside a construction fence near the Marriott, a bearded black man in an old leather jacket and a beret, somewhere in his fifties, I'd say, playing the tune without a glance at anyone passing by, though in truth there was nobody passing by but me. I paused for a moment to listen, though it seemed almost too intimate a thing to share that song with a stranger. Fish are jumping. And the cotton is high Oh, your daddy's rich And your mama's good-looking So hush, little baby Don't you cry 
After a moment, I turned to continue down Market Street, but only a few paces along, I paused. Next to me, on the sidewalk, was a bus shelter. Attached to the shelter was a public payphone. The phone was ringing. I looked around, I guess, to see whether anyone would come rushing up to answer it, but no one came. Besides the saxophone player and me, there was no one at all on the sidewalk. I don't know if you've ever walked by a ringing payphone. It's not the kind of experience one is likely to have anymore. Even then, it was unlikely. A few years later, there was a movie, a thriller, about a man who answers a phone in a booth at Times Square and the consequences he suffers for this. I can see why the idea inspired a film. There is a thrill to the moment, because of course it could be anyone calling for almost any reason. And you know that by answering the call, you are volunteering yourself to serve some stranger's purpose, even if it only goes so far as hearing what the stranger has to say. There was some business, some agenda behind that ringing phone, and the safest and simplest thing to do was stay away. But, of course, I couldn't stay away. I had to know. I answered the phone. Hello, I said, as one does. The voice I heard sounded as though it belonged to a young white woman, someone not much older than me. Hi, she said. This is going to sound weird. Okay, I said. Are there any street musicians out tonight? She asked. Behind me, I still heard the sounds of summertime. One of these mornings, you're gonna rise up singing. Yeah, I said, there's one, a sax player. He's pretty good. There was the tiniest pause. Could you tell him he has a phone call? And so here I was, an agent, if I accepted it, of some stranger's designs. I didn't want to interrupt the man with the saxophone, especially not in the middle of such a gorgeous tune, but it seemed important. There had been an urgency to the woman's voice. All right, I said, and I rested the receiver atop the phone booth and walked back to the man with the saxophone, who was still playing. Then you'll spread your wings and you'll take to the sky. And I stood in front of him and held my hand up to my ear in a little telephone gesture and said, you have a phone call. And he paused his playing and he looked me in the eye and there was nothing but exhaustion in his eyes and in his voice. I mean, there was more. I think there was anger and exasperation and sadness and other things I could not name, but all of it seemed to come out in a richly textured, deeply felt exhaustion. Is it a girl, chief? He asked. I said that it was. For one last moment, he looked at me, shaking his head slowly, almost as though it were less a signal to me than an effort to rouse himself from a bad dream. Hang up the phone, he said, and he went back to playing.
Now it was up to me to decide how much deeper I would allow myself to be drawn into this mysterious little drama. It seemed rude just to hang up on someone without comment. And if I did hang up now, I would never know anything more about the story between these two strangers. But I also felt bound to respect the man's wishes. And I knew that if I spoke again to the woman on the phone, even just to tell her that he didn't want to speak with her, she would try to persuade me to persuade him. And I, an agreeable person, especially in those days, would have a hard time saying no to her. I picked up the handset from the top of the box, and I looked at it for a moment, and I paused, and then, as though it made any difference how gently I set it down, I hung up the phone as quietly as I could. I walked on. Behind me, summertime came to its end. But till that morning, there is nothing can harm you. With daddy and mommy standing by. Since then, of course, I've wondered what I stumbled into that night. There might have been some long and complicated drama between the two of them, or maybe she was little more to him than a nuisance, an overly committed fan. Only lately has it occurred to me to wonder something else about the scene, something unrelated to the phone call. Why was such a talented man playing such a lonely corner? He had no audience but me, and he had me only for a moment. He could not made he could not have made much more than a dollar or two in tips. In fact, I'm not sure whether he had his case out for tips at all. Maybe it did have some relation to the woman on the phone. Maybe he was hiding here on Market Street with his music at the loneliest hour of the evening to keep away from her. Or maybe he did want to see her in the way you sometimes want so desperately to see someone, someone you cannot see, because to see them only breaks your heart. Of course, there are plenty of reasons a man might find himself playing to the empty night. Now that I am older, I understand this better. The world does not feature most of us in the way we might have wished. Ambitions, like lovers, can slip from our grasp, no matter how tightly we might once have held them. Often we have little choice but to make our music alone. At least it is still our music, and it might be all the more beautiful for its loneliness, because then it is so purely personal. Maybe there is nothing more beautiful than expressing myself for my own sake. There's a poem by William Butler Yeats called To a Friend Whose Work Has Come to Nothing. Here's how it goes. Now all the truth is out. Be secret and take defeat from any brazen throat. For how can you compete being honor-bred 
with one who, were it proved he lies, were neither shamed in his own nor in his neighbor's eyes. Bred to a harder thing than triumph, turn away, and like a laughing string whereon mad fingers play amid a place of stone, be secret and exult, because of all things known, that is most difficult. I've taken the title of this podcast, Be Secret and Exult, from Yeats's poem. It seemed apt for a project I can't expect will find very many listeners. I suppose there are many things I send into the world. Among them are my stories, which sometimes find a home and maybe a few readers, and I love and appreciate all those who read them or listen to them, whether or not they love the stories themselves. But what I have learned from four and a half decades in this very big universe is to tell my stories for myself, to be my own little avatar of the cosmos, singing to itself, because for all we owe one another, as strangers, as lovers, and as everything in between, each of us owes it to ourselves to exult in our own work, in our own voice. And it is a secret thing, this exultation, no matter who might be listening. The stories I have to tell, the stories you'll hear on this podcast, are stories of change. Change is both cosmic and personal. We struggle for it. We try to escape it. It finds us wherever we hide. I write in the genre called magical realism because I believe we live in a magical realist world, a world where the strangest things happen, whether or not we see them. What is magic? I would say that magic is simply the possibility that things we can't imagine possible will happen nonetheless. Some of these things will be miracles, and some of them will be tragedies. When they happen, they will soon cease to look like magic at all. They will just be real, whether we are ready for them or not. Fraught with magic, the world offers us one powerful consolation, that no matter what might change, no matter what we might be to others, no matter what we might have hoped to be, we can, each of us, choose to be secret and exult. Thanks for listening, and good night. <laughs>